We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, he suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Gateway Online. This is the second installment of our series, Navigating Faith. And through this series, we're using the Nicene Creed to organize our thoughts. So why the Nicene Creed? Well, the Nicene Creed has been a standard declaration of faith for Christians for 17 centuries. It's a simple, straightforward summary of Orthodox belief. In fact, it outlines the very foundations of our faith. It's not the whole story, but it's the plot summary. So today we'll be looking at the second stanza of the Creed, and it's a doozy. Now, the middle section of the Creed, which we'll cover this weekend next, is really the heart of the matter. The Creed was written primarily as an exercise in explaining who Jesus is, how great He is, and how He's related to the Father. Today, we're going to be looking at the first part of that middle section where they dealt with that question head on. But this material also implies some profound things about us. In fact, over the next two weeks, we'll be looking at the two most central truths about who we are and how we relate to God. The two most central truths about who we are and how we relate to God. It doesn't get any bigger or more important for us. Let me give you a hint at the first truth by asking a question. How are we able to connect with one another, first of all? I don't just mean our people skills. I mean, why is this a thing? Why are we a species that relates to others in its species? Why are we relational at all? And on what basis do we relate? More importantly, how are we able to connect with God? God, look. We create art, but our art doesn't relate to us. It doesn't connect with us. Well, we're a creation. How are we able to relate to our Creator? This stanza of the Nicene Creed lays the foundation for the answer to that question. That's why we're calling this week Navigating Connection. So uh, let's begin by reading the second section of the Creed together. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, 
begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through Him all things were made. Now, before we go any further in analyzing the creed, I, I think it would be important to understand the background. Where did it come from and why was it written? Often when you ask that kind of question about something that happened in church history, you have to be prepared for some surprises and some messes. Unfortunately, the Nicene Creed is no exception. I mean, it would be a comforting thing if this creed had been written, say, by the second century Christians who are one generation removed from the apostles. At least for me, it would be comforting to think that they just wanted to solidify the doctrine that they all agreed had clearly come from the apostles. It would also be a beautiful thing if this creed had grown out of a harmonious sense of unity and a pure desire to know God better and to express that knowledge devotionally. But this creed has a very checkered history. There was intense controversy and mess which actually is what led to the construction of the creed. And it happened 300 years after Jesus' death. And the mess didn't end there. Controversy and mess lasted for another century after this creed was written. And all of this surrounding what I'm calling the foundation of our faith. There was deep theological divide and ugly political mess. So let me explain. First, the theological divide. The, the creed grew out of very heated theological debates among bishops and church leaders. One of the principal voices was a pastor of one of the main parishes in Alexandria, Egypt, a man named Arius. It was Arius's belief that Jesus was essentially different from the Father. According to Arius, Jesus didn't possess by nature or by right any divine qualities like perfection or immortality. He did not exist before he was begotten. In other words, there was a point of existence when Jesus was not. In fact, the Father produced Jesus as a creature in much the same way as he produced us. Now, while Arius affirmed that Jesus was a participant in the creation of everything else, and so existed apart from time and before all other things, still, according to Arius, Jesus did not share in the being of God the Father, and he did not know the Father perfectly. You know, it's interesting that throughout the last 2,000 years, we've seen hints of Arianism seep into church doctrine and especially into the sects outside of the church. For example, today, there is an echo of Arianism in the beliefs of the Mormon church, and Jehovah's Witnesses believe about Jesus much of the same things that Arius believed. Now, Arius was a Christian pastor, and he attempted to base his teachings on certain scriptures. For example... Arius would point to John 17, 3, where Jesus calls the Father the only true God, quote. And in 1 Timothy 6, Paul seems to separate God from Jesus. And in speaking of God, in verse 16, he says this, quote, who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, end quote. Plus, in Colossians 1, 15, Jesus is called the firstborn among all creation. Now, obviously, Arius did not believe in what we've come to call the doctrine of the Trinity. And you should know he had many followers and admirers throughout the Christian world. On the other side of this debate was a young theologian who would later be the Bishop of Alexandria, a man named Athanasius. We'll say more about him in a bit. So the creed was written to address the very serious debate that grew up around the teachings of these two leaders, Arius and Athanasius. So it's a little discouraging to me, honestly. I mean, how could Christians disagree about something that seems to be so central? The second messy area was political. Again, this is discouraging to me. Why do our religious movements ever have to involve themselves in politics? 
So a first version of the creed was written at a large meeting of church leaders called by the Emperor Constantine in 325 AD. This meeting was meant to be a universal conference of all church leaders from across the Christian world. But there were far more leaders from the East than there were from the West. So even the conference itself was somewhat controversial. Then the creed that was written there was later updated to its present form, probably in 381 AD, at a later conference of church leaders which met in Constantinople. This updated version is what came to be known as the Nicene Creed, the one that we recite today. Now, you don't need to remember all of that, but I want you to note this. As I said, the original conference was called by Emperor Constantine, not by some preeminent church leader, by the way. And here's the thing. Constantine was no theologian. He was a politician. In fact, there are indications that he didn't even understand or care about the finer points of the theological debate. His motivation was political unity in the empire. He didn't want theological infighting because it might lead to sword and chariot infighting. His attitude seems to have been, don't care what y'all come up with. I just need you to agree and stop arguing. And after the conference was over, Constantine banished the losing side, meaning Arius and several key Arians were banished in order to preserve the unity of the empire. But the peace didn't last. Over subsequent decades, decades, the Arians consistently discredited Athanasius and the Trinitarians, and Arianism regained some of its stature, meaning confusion reigned. Now, eventually, Athanasius and the theology of the Trinity would win out, but it took decades for this to happen. Why so much mess? Why did it take so long? It's a little discouraging, right? And the most pressing question is, could this mess and confusion mean that it's not really true or that it doesn't really matter? Look, I wish I could make it all neat and clean for us. I honestly hate the fact that these fourth century Christians could not get along with one another. I'm especially disheartened that a serious theological debate was handled like it was. Fortunately, that never happens anymore. Huh. But I certainly don't think the history of the creed throws any doubt on the substance of it. The Nicene Creed, as it was written, faithfully reflects the reality of the life of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles. That much is clear. I think the best conclusion we can draw is that we are really messy, complicated creatures. And whenever we're involved, things get messy and complicated. The business of relating to God, unfortunately, is no exception. The real mystery is that God can ever get His purposes accomplished when working through material like us. So, what did these church leaders arrive at? What does this section of the creed mean? And what does it say about us? Let's look at it. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Now, another way to translate that last phrase is the unique Son of God. You know, sometimes when we hear the phrase, Son of God, we color that phrase with images of the human fathers and sons that we know. But it was not the intention of the authors of the creed to establish a relationship between God the Father and God the Son that parallels the relationship I have with my three sons, for example. Jesus represents a very unique kind of sonship with different dynamics. The language here is borrowed from John 3.16. Do you know that verse? For God so loved the world that He gave His only His unique Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have an eternal kind of life. So what do we mean by unique? What are we saying? Well, this section of the creed attempts to spell that out. Here it goes. Begotten from the Father 
before all ages, it says. And we know from later writings of some of these church leaders that, that they were imagining here an act of eternal ongoing begottenness. To help us understand, we can look at the parallel in the last section of the creed, which speaks of the Spirit. There it says, He proceeds from the Father and the Son as if this is an ongoing action. So don't use human begottenness as an analogy. It's not a perfect match. Okay, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God. Let's use another image. Light from light. Is that not clear enough? True God from true God, begotten, not made. This was an act of, not an act of creation, and he did not have a beginning. It was an act of relationship, if you will. And then the final explanation, of the same essence as the Father. And this is the summary of the relationship between Jesus and the Father. Of the same essence. The Greek word here is homoousion. Homo meaning same, ousion meaning substance, essence. And then the creed rounds out the uniqueness of Jesus, saying, through him all things were made. So clearly this is not just another Joe. Okay, my middle son's name is Dawson. A few of you who've been around Gateway for a number of years, you know him. He kind of looks like me, only better. He also has some characteristics like mine in the way he moves sometimes, certainly in the way he thinks about things, the way he approaches the world. This isn't surprising. His very genetic makeup comes in part from me. So uh, he kind of has me in him down to the cellular level. And yet Dawson is his own man. If you know him, you know how true that is. He often disagrees with me, doesn't mind letting me know. He does some things very differently than I would. He is not in any sense of the same essence as me. But something different is going on in the relationship between Jesus and the Father. Look at John 10, 27 through 30. This is Jesus talking, by the way. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. Why do the sheep follow him? Why does he even say such a thing? Why not say the sheep follow God? He continues, I give them eternal life. What? You give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Again, what are you saying, Jesus? Especially what are you saying about yourself? My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Okay, we get this. And you've drawn a clear distinction between yourself and the Father. That seems about right. Now hear Jesus' conclusion. I and the Father are one. I mean, Jesus is either a little bit crazy or something very different is going on here. Later, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples in John 14. And Philip asks him a very critical question. Listen to this. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after all this time I've been among you, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And then the religious authorities who ever heard this did the only thing they could. They took up stones to kill him. They recognized this for what it was. He was claiming to be God. This is blasphemy. Unless it's true. So let's not be confused. Well, okay, the whole idea is confusing, but let's not be fooled into thinking that Arius was on to something. No, the disciples, the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and his teaching, they got it. And later, so did Athanasius, the driving force behind the Nicene Creed. Do you remember doubting Thomas? 
the, the one we can all relate to in the New Testament, one of the disciples, the one who refused to believe that Jesus was resurrected. Thomas was thinking, it just doesn't make any sense, guys. This is crazy stuff. Do you hear yourselves? He didn't rise from the dead. I miss him too, but come on. And then Jesus walked in the room. And what is Thomas's response? When Thomas saw Jesus, he said, my Lord and my God. This is not something any self-respecting Jew with any understanding whatsoever would ever say to their local rabbi, no matter how impressive they were. And repeatedly, we see the same thing in the preaching of the other disciples throughout the book of Acts. They took Old Testament stories that were about God and actions that were assigned to God, and they attributed those to Jesus. So father and son, distinction, difference, separation, and yet essential solidarity, absolute oneness, complete unity, timeless coexistence, and perfect harmony of will and purpose. And we will add the Holy Spirit in a few weeks and get to the full Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Three persons, one being, what? So we've read the creed. We get what they were saying. At least we understand the words. But what? Well, let's first of all acknowledge that we can never fully understand this concept. We have to remain humble before the idea of God. But doesn't that make sense anyway? Isn't that what we would expect when thinking about God? A.W. Tozer, a famous pastor and author from 100 years ago, went so far as to admit this. Listen, the doctrine of the Trinity is truth for the heart. Love and faith are at home in the mystery of the Godhead. Let reason kneel in reverence outside. I mean, he's right. However, we can say a little more about all of this because there are helpful ways of thinking of this and not so helpful ways. Now, some of you have perhaps heard the analogy that Just as I can be a father and a son and a husband, so God can be a father, son, and spirit. But you have to be very careful when using this analogy. It places too much emphasis on the oneness. It's not really helpful because it cheats the complexity of God in an effort to help us understand the unity. Because when I'm being father or son or husband, it's always just me. But in the case of God, Remember, there is not only profound essential unity, but there's also distinction. Jesus prays to the Father after all. I never pray to myself. More helpful, but still not completely adequate, is the idea that water can exist as liquid or ice or vapor, so God can be Father, Son, and Spirit. We have to be careful with this analogy as well. This has often been referred to as modalism, meaning God can exist in three different modes. But without question, those who knew Jesus knew he was not just one mode of God's existence. He was not the Father in another mode, in other words. Clearly, he taught his disciples that the Father was distinct from himself in in some way. The great 4th century theologian Augustine did better. He imagined that we could think of God, the Father, as lover, the Son as the loved one, and the Spirit as the love between them. This is less than perfect, but it's better. And I'm going to return to this analogy in a moment. Before I give you my favorite analogy, I think it's important to think a little bit about and talk a little bit about how the Trinity works. So true story, the Trinity was planning a holiday. The spirit showing the creative part of the divine nature was coming up with ideas. He said, let's go to New York, he suggested. No, 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 said the father. They're all so liberated. They'll spend the whole time calling me mother and it'll just do my head in. So the Spirit sat back and thought, okay, I know. How about Jerusalem? It's beautiful. And then there's the history and everything. No way, the Son declared, after what happened there last time, I'm never going back. 
At this point, the spirit got annoyed and went off in a huff. And sometime later, he returned and he found that the father and son had had an idea that they both thought was excellent. Why don't we go to Rome, said the son. And perfect, cried the Holy Spirit. I've never been there before. I want you to know, I first heard that from a Catholic priest. All right, so back to the job of explaining the unexplainable. I want to give you my favorite analogy for the Trinity. I love the way C.S. Lewis explained it. He asks us to imagine drawing a straight line on a piece of paper. This is a one-dimensional figure. Then imagine drawing a square. This would be a two-dimensional figure exhibiting both width and depth. Lewis reminds us that while the second figure is completely different from the first, it nevertheless uses elements of the first figure. That is, several straight lines are used to make the square. Then Lewis suggests that we imagine drawing a three-dimensional cube. The cube is actually the combination of six squares drawn together. And he summarizes this. Listen, in other words, as you advance to more real and more complicated levels, you do not leave behind you the things you found on the simpler levels. You still have them, but combined in new ways, in ways you could not imagine if you knew only the simpler levels. Now the Christian account of God involves just the same principle. The human level is a simple and rather empty level. On the human level, one person is one being, and any two persons are two separate beings, just as in two dimensions, say on a flat piece of paper, one square is one figure, and another square is a separate figure. On the divine level, you still find personalities, but up there you find them combined in new ways, which we who do not live on that level cannot imagine. In God's dimension, so to speak, you find a being who is three persons while remaining one being, just as a cube is six squares while remaining one cube. Father and son, distinction, difference, separation, and yet essential solidarity, absolute oneness, complete unity, timeless coexistence in perfect harmony of will and purpose. This is what Jesus demonstrated to his first followers. This is what the creed tried to clarify. So now let's return to Augustine's analogy for a second. Lover loved love. I don't like this analogy as much as Lewis's, as I said, but it does highlight one critical thing about the Trinity, doesn't it? The Trinity is a relationship. God is a relationship. God has existed from eternity as a relationship. It's even more profound than the fact that he exists in relationship with himself. In essence, he is a relationship. He is a connection. One God, three persons. Now, let me take you back to last week. If you heard the lesson last week, you may remember that God created the heavens and the earth, everything visible and invisible, the creed says, and the scripture affirms. And all of it, we said, is an act of self-expression. All creativity is an act of self-expression. Every creator expresses himself in the creation. Then we noted that we are the absolute pinnacle of God's self-expression in creation. The pinnacle, the high point of creation is, drumroll, us. Genesis 1 says that we are created in God's very image, in his likeness. So let's do the obvious math here. God is a connection. He is a relationship by the very nature of his being. And we are made in his image. So no surprise, we are relators. We are connectors. It's in our DNA. That's why we get lonely. Why should there be such a feeling as loneliness? Because we were made for connection. That's why Jesus told his followers that people would know they were his students, not by how religious they were, not by how carefully they followed the rules. People would know that they were his students by their love for one another, by their connection and by the nature of that connection.
What Jesus released was a movement of connecting. What else would we expect of a God who is relationship? This is why when Jesus was asked the greatest commandment, he said, well, love God first with all you got and love your neighbor second. Then he went further. Actually, he said all of God's commandments and all the stories about knowing God can be summarized in these two things. This is why Jesus defined eternal life like he did. In John 17, 3, he said, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is defined not by its duration, but by its nature. It is a relationship with the Godhead. In other words, it's all about connecting to God and to others. And Jesus made that clear throughout his life and his teaching. He yelled it out as loudly as he could. It's all about connecting with God and with one another, really connecting. And his first followers got it. This is why Jesus' best friend John said in 1 John 1.3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship, you may connect with us. It's all about connecting. That's why we've written this note. And then John wraps it up and says, our fellowship, our connection is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Throughout the letter of 1 John, John goes on a four-chapter tirade about love, but the highlight of it might be 1 John 3.16. This is where he gives us his bottom line. This is how we know what love is, he says. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Epic! We'll have more to say about that next week. So, remember our opening question, how are we able to connect? Well, the reason that we're able to connect is because we were designed to be a connecting species by a God who existed from eternity as a connection. And the basis of our connection with one another and with God is what God did in His unique Son, Jesus Christ. What God the Father did in God the Son, what He showed us, what He taught us, and then, as we'll find out next week, His death for us. This is literally how we can connect healthily. And a lesser Jesus could not offer this. This is why we're so indebted to Athanasius for preserving for us the right way of seeing Jesus, of seeing God. By the way, this is why we spend so much time talking about small groups at Gateway. Look, I know it's a hassle to try to build connections with people you barely know, you may not have much in common with. I know schedules are crazy. I get all of the hesitations. I have them as well. But I know from my experience with Jesus and from my experience with community, I know that you cannot do the spiritual life alone. You cannot grow alone. You cannot know God fully alone. It's a group project. That's how we were designed. It's not about obeying the rules. It's not about attending a service somewhere. It's about connecting with God and with others. So go get connected. Let's pray together. Father, we worship you. We worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus, we acknowledge, even though we can barely imagine how awesome you are, essential oneness with the Father from eternity. Through you, all things were created. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. All we can say is, my Lord and my God, we're deeply thankful to you. Thankful that you executed the Father's plan on our behalf. We're deeply indebted to you. We praise you this morning. And Lord, I want to ask that you would help us with this business of connecting healthily. I think, first of all, of our families. 
This has been an unsettling and trying season, a weird year. And yet, Lord, for some of us, it's been an awesome excuse to dig in with our families. For some of us, that's been tough. And I pray that you would be in the midst of those situations. For others of us, this has been rich. I pray that we'll remember and even recalibrate our lives. For all of us, Lord, I pray for deeper connections with others. It's what you've called us to. It's what you made us. And today we listen. Oh, Lord, speak to us. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.